Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of James, the fifth chapter, verses 13 through 20. And the text reads, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is, is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayers are offered in faith will make them sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayers of the righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from their error ways, of, of their ways, will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sin. This is God's word. You may be seated. <clears throat> a little bit of a little bit of a, a stressful week. Um, if you were in the office, uh, you know things uh, with the auditorium, things over here being set up. Uh, you know Richard did such a, a marvelous job. Uh, but it was a, it, you know, and he's to be commended. Send, send him a pink note. He, he just did a great job. Was here until nine o'clock last night with the lights being inserted, along with with others from our church family. Um, it was really kind of stre- you know funny how the stress is manifested. Um, in the middle of the week. Uh, we're all kind of in the area there by the secretary's office, and Richard can't find his keys. And, and he'd go, man, have you seen my keys? I, I haven't seen my, you know, I, I'm sure he brought them over, you know. And just, he can't find his keys, and, and all of a sudden Richard goes, hey, wait a minute, I've got a tracker on it. And he hits the tracker on his, on his iPad, and my pockets start beeping. <laughs> and I, I said, oh, your keys are right here in my pocket. <laughs> You know, Douglas ended up with two cars to drive home on Wednesday night. I mean, you know, it, it, was, a, it was a stressful week. But thank you, thank you so much for, for your patience and, and for making the adjustments in your week and the way that you'd normally do things on a Sunday morning. Really, really, really great, great, great for you to be here this morning. I do want to recognize a couple of other guys. Those two guys in the back, they're running AV, uh, Grant and, and Robert. Uh, for the last couple of weeks, not just over the last week, but over the last couple of weeks, they have really been working hard to try to get everything that we do over in the auditorium, the same stuff that we can do over here in the fellowship hall, which means not only trying to get the sound just right and to get the video projection going just right, but also making sure that we can record and make sure that we can live stream. And not only that, in case there was some overflow this morning, that we can live stream over into the small kitchen. And that is a lot of work. And they, I think we should commend these guys. And, and, and thank them for a, for a job well done. And uh, 
uh, I'm really grateful again for the, the kind of help that, uh, that this church has given this project over, really, over the last year. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Does everybody have an, an, uh, an outline? Everybody have an outline? All right. Uh, we're going to finish James this morning. We're going to look at uh, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Uh, we're going to finish out James. We're going to begin with a word of prayer and then uh, jump into this last text. Next, uh, next week we'll be in the, the, the Abraham study, not only in our adult Bible classes, but we'll be preaching through the life of Abraham starting next week in our Abraham Amazing Journey stuff. So be praying about that, and let's begin with a word of prayer right now. Father, so, so many ways that you bless us. And, and when we even begin to, to slow down enough to count them and to think about them and to contemplate on all of the ways that, that you intersect our lives, the, 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 the times that we feel it right up front, times that we see it from the perspective of, of hindsight, these things just leave us speechless. We want you, Father, to become so real to us that we sent you in every moment of our life. And we want you, Father, to be so real to us that you completely reorder our life and help us to come up into uh, a comfort level with the structures that you give us for life, Father, that help us to to flourish and, and to be the kind of human beings that you have called us to be. Thank you for your gospel. And every time we open it up, Father, and think about the good news, we pray that you give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it, Father, in such a way that we turn toward you and are healed. Thank you for our church and for our study this morning. Bless us in it. And we pray this with all of our heart in the name of Jesus. Amen. I have a a friend who many, 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 many moons ago graduated from high school. And a year or two after he graduated from high school, he uh, invited one of his best friends and his best friend's mother to come to church with him. And they did. And uh, during the assembly that morning, uh, about halfway through, his friend came up with a cough. And just about the time he was about to let that cough out, he realized that nobody in the auditorium was coughing. And he thought to himself... This must be a church in which nobody is sick. And he stifled the cough and nearly choked to death there on the front pew. But the irony of it is, you know, once you get past the the daily sort of superficial greetings that we give each other when we see each other, hi, how you doing, how's everything going, and we just kind of give the perfunctory answers and sometimes very superficial answers, once you begin to drill down into people's lives, one of the things that you begin to see is that we all struggle with life. We all struggle with life, not at, uh, at, a, at a deep level, but at a severely profound level at times. We struggle with life. And one of the ironies about that story is that in reality, the church is a community for the healing of human beings. That's what happens when the gospel comes into people's lives. I mean, think for a minute, just for a second, what the church is supposed to look like. The church... Is full of people who, who are seeking to be wholesome, who are seeking to be healthy, to be, to be flourishing in their life, but aren't. They live in a world of thorns and thistles, and as we've said lots of times in the past, sometimes those thorns and thistles that we read about in Genesis chapter 3, those thorns and thistles get inside of us. And what they want more than anything else, once they come to the truth about their own life and they begin to be honest about their own life, is that they want to get on a trajectory where there can be some healing. They want to be on a migration from disease and and from disorder. 
They want to migrate from, from disorder and infirmity to renovation and to renewal and to restoration. They want to be restored to the way human beings were always meant to be and created to be. And so when you read the New Testament letters, and James is not an exception at all, that's what's happening inside of every church. You have people that are just dominated by idols. They, they grew up in a culture, and they were living in a culture that was steeped with idols, dominated by idols. And those idols that were supposed to be an answer to life's problems ended up enslaving them and actually bringing death into their life. They're steeped in all kinds of immorality. They're drenched through and through with anxiety and with fear and without any real hope that things in this life are going to be any different. They are ingrained with biases and, and with prejudices and hatreds, and they permeate the world with violence and with war. And if that's not bad enough, there's this sword called death that seems to be hanging over everybody's head. And these are the people that are responding to the gospel. And they come into the church messy and gritty and bloody. And a lot of times that God-shaped hole in their heart is not quite filled up with, with God just yet. But they are on that trajectory. They're in that migration pattern from all of that death and all of that hopelessness and despair and disorder and, and, and disease in life to wholesomeness. And to become the kind of people that God always intended for them to be. And James says, as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, somebody that has embraced the gospel, not only just sees the gospel as the truth... That Jesus really was historically, as a matter of fact, you know, someone who lived a perfect unblemished life and died on the cross in order for my sins to be transferred to him and his righteousness transferred to me. And three days later, after his death, resurrected as first fruits to newness of life, to a glorified life, to that resurrected life that we'll talk about here in a couple of minutes in more detail. But when that happens, people all of a sudden begin to change. And James says, this is what it looks like. And as we've been talking about our theme, Amplify, over the last uh, two months or so, trying to get our mind around, what is, if, if you were to amplify your faith from where it is today, if you were to amplify it where it became more visible, what would it look like? When you amplify a guitar, you give it a distinct sound. You make it loud. When you amplify you know, a voice, you make it heard over all of the other voices. When you amplify a life of faith, you make it ample. You make it detectable. You make it palpable. It's something that you can see. It's something that you can detect with your life. And James says, you know, when you have the gospel come into your life, it invades your life in a certain way where you begin to change. It's not just intellectual, but you physically, literally, spiritually, emotionally begin to change and fear begins to, to subside and hope begins to rise up. And there's this glorious future that you begin to embrace. What begins to happen? The very first thing he says is that you suffer differently. One of the most palpable ways that you can tell a disciple is in the way that they approach suffering. They don't try to deny it and act as if it doesn't happen or that they're somehow, with their Teflon coating, immune from it. It, it bounces on them but bounces off. They don't live in fear of it. They don't deny it, but they approach it realistically. They understand that a power has come into their life. They understand that a power has come into their life. The power of God has come into their life in such a way that the evil that has, has, has invaded them and has, has, has perpetrated their, their defenses, that power of evil gets turned on itself in a way that as you come out of the valley of the shadow of death, you come out as the best version of yourself. That God has that kind of power in your life. That the way that you suffer is different. 
God's word is a power that comes into your life. That it's it, it's like a seed that's pregnant with life, and like you know, and he's using all kinds of agricultural letters. He moves through this letter describing what a disciple looks like. That seed somehow becomes a, a planted in your heart. And God's word, as that seed planted in your heart, it takes root and it begins to grow and it begins to blossom in places where you didn't know you had buds. And you begin to live this changed life, this life that flourishes, this life that blossoms. Which means that the word, the word of God becomes a a dynamic in your life, sparking you not just to hear it and to hear it only, but to be a a doer of it as well. Disciples are those kind of people that live what James calls the royal law. They don't treat people according to conventional human wisdom. They don't treat world, uh, people in the world the way that the world dictates or sometimes models or gives an example of the way that these people ought to be treated. They treat people according to what James calls the royal law, which means that you love your neighbor as what? You love your, say it, self. That's the royal law. The gospel creates people for which faith is detectable in the way that they live and the good deeds that they shower on the people around them. Disciples more than anyone else because of the power of God's word that has come into their life and the power of that word to change them. They understand the power of their own words. And so one of the ways that a disciple lives his amplified life in the community is in watching the way that they speak. Disciples who are honest about their need for the gospel and the cleansing that comes from God in order for them to become sons of God and daughters of God understand that their words have power too and they need to watch the way that they use them. That their own tongue needs to be healed along with the rest of their body. This life also calls for a different kind of wisdom. A wisdom that comes from... uh, from the throne room, from the center of heaven itself where God is seated. It's not a conventional wisdom that comes from men. And by that wisdom, the disciples of Jesus of Nazareth align their life. We don't go through life, you know, recognizing God on Sundays and maybe on Wednesday night if we show up, but we recognize God as we order our days and order our weeks and order our months and years. We don't go through life without recognizing that God is Father and God is Creator. We don't say that we're going to do this and do that without reference to God. Everything that we do is in reference to God. A a disciple, as James describes it, is somebody who never values things more than God or people. They have this this different view on, on riches and on material blessings. A disciple is also someone who grows in patience. You know, he recognizes that God, you know, for you to be able to come into God's presence... With, with all of the time that it took to recognize the truth about your own life and the holes that are in your soul and, and, and the way that you've pierced yourself with many griefs over all, all of life, the patience that God has shown you in bringing you into His kingdom and bringing you into His presence and bringing you into His forever family is the same patience that we show to other people around us. Because when we don't, and we make it about our needs, and we make it about us, and we begin to grumble against people, and we begin to scorn them, it's it's just a sign that we still have not gotten ourselves out of the way. But we have learned that we live for higher purposes, and we do not live for ourselves, but we live for other people. We love people, we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so a disciple grows in patience with other people that keeps the door open for introducing spiritual realities rather than slamming that door shut in in personal irritations. Now, what I've given you in about five minutes is a a, a very quick and, and, and partial description of James of a disciple. 
And what James has dedicated nearly an entire letter in doing is uh, just really kind of blowing out a truth that the Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 1. He says, In all of my prayers for all of you, I pray, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day into now being confident of this. What's he confident of? That God, who began a good work in you, that is when the gospel comes into your life and begins to transform your life and revolutionize your life, that God, who began a good work in you through the gospel, will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In this last text, after talking about what a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth looks like, he's going to talk about the church. Who we are. And he describes it as a place made up of humans for the purpose of healing. And that's not the entire reason for the church, but it's an important one for James in thinking about the power of the gospel going into the world that it did at that time. And there are three things that he teaches us. Number one, community. Community is important. This entire text, the the one that Curtis read for us just a minute ago, is built on the premise of Christian people who are in relationship with other Christian people. Implied throughout this text is that when you're sick, what do you need? People. When you are sinful, what do you need? People. When when you need to, to, to be honest about your life, who do you need? You need people who know the truth about you, and it's become kind of a safe place for you to be truthful about your life with people who understand the gospel. You need people, especially righteous people and elders, to pray over you and and with you in times of illness. You need people, you need people to keep you from wandering from the truth. You know, one of the things that is, is, is kind of a myth, it's sort of an urban legend in Western Christianity, is that you know, what, you know what Christianity is really all about? It's about going to an assembly where the music is great, the singing is wonderful, the, 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 the preaching is great, the, the, uh, the, the, the scripture readings, the prayers, the time around the table. It just, it's, just, it's just high energy, it's dynamic. I go there, I get pumped up for the rest of the week, and I leave. And people do this for years, not realizing that you can grow old in a pew and never grow up. The issue is not whether or not worship is good, but that you need more than worship to make these kinds of changes in your life. A.W. Tozer wrote in The Pursuit of God, a guy that we quote from time to time, he says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? You know, we think... And it doesn't work. We think that we go to church and we become disciples. Worship is important. Worship is where we center God at the core of our being. It's it's thanking God for all that he's done. It's recognizing who God is. It's thanking God for the gospel. It's it's remembering the sacrifice. It's, it's It's a time, it's a time to remember God. And that is part of it. But that's not all of it. You need to be in relationship with other people, in in groups of people, in order to change. In order to change. This community connectedness in God through the gospel is, 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 is tremendously vital. One reason, again, that, that, the, that, that the spirituality of so many people today in Western culture is anemic is because we have, we have really not built the relationships in the community of faith that we need. And so we, ended up, we end up sometimes wandering from the truth and nobody recognizes it. Or there are questions that we might have that the, the preacher or, the, or, or a, a, a teacher might not get to in, 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 in 30 years. 
But you have that question. That question is vital to you. In fact, that question is, is, is the information, the answer to that question is so vital because it's going to help you recognize something in God that you've never recognized before. And yet, because you don't interact and because we don't, we, we don't have that fellowship connection, we suffer on the vine. Community is important, but so is, secondly, prayer and confession. They're essential. Prayer and confession are essential. Um, I like Jack Lemmon as, as an actor. Uh, he had this sort of this obscure movie towards the end of his career. In 1984, did this movie called Mass Appeal where he is, he's, he's minister for the church. He's kind of a political guy, never rocks the boat, tells jokes in the sermons, makes everybody feel good. And there's this younger minister who's coming up. He's going to be an associate, but he's a maverick. He's a rebel. And every time he opens his mouth, it's really to start a fight with somebody over some point of theology. But he's really, you know, he's, he really cares and so, you know, the leaderships, you know, they want him to work a little bit closer with the older minister and, and to kind of be seasoned a little bit and learned how to dial it back a little bit. And it doesn't work. He just becomes a, more of a maverick in that church he's working with. And the Jack Lemon character, the older guy, says, you know what, I, I want to give him one last chance. So he preaches his last sermon. And in that sermon, he talks about as he was growing up, he had um, an aquarium. And he loved the aquarium. Aquarium was full of fish, beautiful fish, and he'd look at the fish and feed the fish, and he loved the fish. They were, you know, the objects of his affection. Until one day he came home from school and he found them floating at the top deck. And the reason for it is he had placed that aquarium too close to a window, and through the summer the water had gotten hot and infected, and the fish died. And he said, You know, here's the sad thing I love those fish, but I couldn't understand fish language. I did not have fish ears where I could hear the fish screaming for help. He said, I didn't have the fish eyes that would be able to see a fish suffer and asking for help. And he said, then it dawned on me that, you know, in the church we're surrounded by so many people and if we don't have the right kind of ears, we can sit by them on the pew, we can, we can go through our daily life with them and never know that they're screaming for help. We've got to have the kind of eyes that recognize those screams on people's faces as we interact with them. To be able to see past, past the facade of everything's okay, I'm doing okay, everything's great, to see what's really happening behind them. And that, that's, that's what James is trying to get across here. He's, he's saying, you know, what happens when, when you're sick? Or, excuse me, when you're in trouble? Verse 13 is, is anyone among you in trouble? You know, the, the word there describes somebody that, that's kind of right in the middle of a battle, the misery of war. You know, they don't know what the next minute's going to be, let alone the next hour, the next year. They don't know if they're going to live or die at the end of the day. It's that intense, and at the same time, the resources are going down. They don't know what to do. They're in trouble, and they're in pain. What does James say? Pray. Is anyone happy? He says in verse 13, happy again, not the greatest of translations. The word really describes the opposite end of the spectrum from that of somebody that's in trouble. What he's talking about is somebody that survived the battle and is, is, is happy. They're sort of encouraged. They're enthusiastic that they've kind of gone through the valley of the shadow of death and have made it to the other side and they're, and they're doing okay. That's what he's describing. What happens if you've gone through that battle and, and, and you've gone through it faithfully and you get to the other side of that spiritual battle and, and you find yourself sort of happy? What do you do? You rejoice. And you sing praises to God. 
And in so doing, you let people know that when they go through the same thing, God is faithful to them. He says in verse 14, is is anyone sick? You know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to call the elders of the church to pray and to anoint oil over you. Uh, One of the guys I used to go to Israel with, uh, Dr. Chris Bullard, he said, you know, really what I think they're talking about there is not just prayer, but also medicine. That, that's one of the ways that, you know, medicine was practiced in the ancient world. And that's true. You look at Luke chapter 10, you know, the story of the Good Samaritan. What happens when the Samaritan finds a guy on the side of the road? Pours oil on his wounds and begins to bandage. And it was a way of taking care of him. But to pour oil on somebody meant more than just medicine. It also was symbolic of God's unceasing interest in his people during times of duress. When you were pouring that oil over somebody's head in the ancient world, it was a way of saying, we're in this with you, and guess what? God's in this with you as well. You know, when we go to, uh, to the hospital and, and we visit people, you know, it, 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 it's great to tell stories, and it, it, it's great to, 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 uh, to get their mind off of their suffering with some laughing and coffee and food and these kinds of things. But at some point, the fact that we are representing Christ as we walk into that room needs to happen. Where we remind people that, you know what, you may, this, this pain makes you feel so alone. Suffering makes you feel like you're by yourself. But you're not by yourself. You have people that are surrounding you, and I'm one of them. And not only that, as a representative of Christ, I'm here to tell you that Christ is here with you. That's what happens when, when, when people are sick. That we're conveying two things. That, that we're here with you, that we're praying for you, that people care, and more importantly, God cares and is active in not just the life of the church, but in your life. He says next, not not only prayer, but confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. What what he's saying there when he says confess your sins, you know what he's saying? He's saying, you know what? You're saying, I'm caught. I'm caught and I can't get out and I need some help. That's what confession is. I'm caught, I can't get out, and I need some help. There's a flip side of that, and that is where somebody else comes into your life and says, you know what, I I see all the signs, you're caught. And I don't think you're going to be able to get out unless there's some help. And let me help. At the end of that, that book, he says, or that letter, he says, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Quite frankly, I wonder why we consider the reading of the prayer requests at the end of our assemblies as a lesser part of the assembly in light of this text. You know, one of the things that's great about our church family, I think, is the fact that before we we leave this place, there is a reminder that we're just not an island, that we don't go through this alone, that it's not just God and me and me and God but that we are a part of something big. And you're a part of people's lives, and those people are part of your life. And that's why we have that reading of the responses, and that prayer time, and the shepherd's time, and all of that at the end of the assembly. The last thing that we have as we go out into the world is a reminder that we are not alone. And that I may be suffering, but I'm surrounded by... A wall of brothers and sisters. And you don't go out into that world with your suffering or your questions or your doubts or your struggles without knowing that you're surrounded by a wall of brothers and sisters and God is over all.
Last thing, and then and we're done. Personal righteousness is crucial. Someday your relationship will, with God is going to seem really weak and really anemic, and you're going to need help from a righteous man or a righteous woman. And they're not going to come to me or other people on staff or even the elders, but they're going to go to your life. And they're going to go to your life because there's something that's been established in the relationship over the years that they trust you and you trust them and, and, and they love you and you love them. And they're going to come to you and out of your righteousness, out of your life, everything that the gospel has done in your life in growing you up into a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, what are you going to offer them? Your prayers and your righteousness. What you're offering them is your relationship with God. And, 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 and there are going to be times when, when, when somebody's going to come to you or you're going to need to come to someone with your issues and what you need is a righteous person who will keep you from wandering, who will pray for you, who will stand with you. Might not always, you know, one of the things that we need to keep saying around this place is we may not always agree with what has happened in your life, but we will always stand with you. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He's just a guy. If Elijah was living in the 21st century, he'd say he's just a dude. He's a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Righteous person. We'll close with this. Uh, I don't know if it's first, his first book, but it's the first book I read by Dallas Willard back in the 1980s, like 88, 87, 88. You don't forget this line, though. He writes, the world can no longer be left to the diplomats, politicians, and business leaders. They have done the best they could, no doubt. But this is an age for spiritual heroes. A time for men and women to be heroic in their faith and in spiritual character and in power. The greatest danger to the Christian church today is that of pitching its message too low. And James is calling us to pick up our game, to amplify our faith, amplify our level of spirituality in such a way that it's seen and heard above everything else. You know, he ends, he, you know, he ends his letter talking about something very important. He's talking about a community. You know, and the, and the ironic thing is, is that, you know, here comes Jesus into the world. And Jesus makes no bones about it. I am the Son of God. I am the Son of God. How many times did he scandalize the, the Jewish people of his day by, by praying to God the Father? They heard that and they went, Father? But he kept doing it because it was a truth. It was a reality that God was his Father. He was the Son. How many times did the, 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 the bat kol, the, the, in Hebrew, the voice, the echo from heaven, the voice of God, say, this is my what? Son. And not only that, my beloved Son. And not only that, but listen to him. I mean, here is the Son of God who is, he is the Son. He is perfect. He is unblemished. He lives right in the middle of God's will, in, as a, the stream of his life. And then all of a sudden, we find him nailed on a cross. And all of that father and sonness is removed as our sins are put on him. And he says, my father, my father, why have you what? Forsaken me. 
He gave up that sonship for a period of time in order for us to get it. We were the ones that were in strange. We were not in community with God. God, God. We were sons of God by creation, but not sons of God by salvation or, or, or adoption. We were lost and blind and going our own way and trying to cram that God-shaped hole in our heart with all kinds of things. We were, we were dominated by idols and we were, we were steeped in all of the prejudices and, and, the, and the misery of the world and we were, we were propagating it and perpetuating it throughout the entire world. But then the Son of God comes and takes our sin in order for us to become His children, to become His community, to become His family. And in so doing, represent Him in the world that He created. That one day will be different than what it is today. And if you've never taken opportunity to become that Son, we're going to give you that opportunity this morning. We're going to have a couple of our shepherds down here at the front. But we're going to have a time to praise God for the greatness of of what he's done for us. And it's an opportunity for us to share the kinds of things that we need to be praying about. But if you've never given your life, you know, confess that you're not Lord, that he is. Repented and turning your life towards him and away from all of the dangerous cliffs that, you know, you're, you're bound to drive off of. To have your sins washed away, to receive his spirit. You know, to grow day by day into the person you were always intended to be. Come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together.